We would like to first acknowledge that we are on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional gathering grounds for many diverse Indigenous peoples, First Nations, Métis, and Inuit, whose footsteps have marked this land and whose presence continue to enrich our vibrant community. Hello and welcome back to Research Recasted, the knowledge mobilization podcast. I'm Dylan Cave and I'm here with my co-host, Brittany Eklund. Break out your lava lamps because today we're going under the sea with LSD, or at least to McEwen's very own fish lab, where zebrafish are making waves as an avenue for study for neuroscientists and those interested in the inner workings of the human brain. Hearing us to talk about it is Dr. Trevor Hamilton. He is an associate professor in the Department of Psychology at McEwen University and a visiting scholar at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography at the University of San Diego. He received his PhD in neuroscience from the University of Alberta and a Bachelor of Science in Psychology from McGill University. His most recent research involves zebrafish and how chemicals like LSD and terpenes, a compound found in cannabis and other plants, alters their behavior. Trevor, thank you so much for joining us here today. Very welcome. So I guess we will dive right in. Um, first, what attracted you to psychology? That's a very good question. Uh, I grew up with a mother who was a psychologist. So my mom was a clinical psychologist. Uh, and when it came time to decide what I wanted to do as an undergraduate student, I thought I'll apply to different psychology programs in Ontario and Quebec. Just so happened that Montreal is a, a very vibrant and exciting city. So that city drew me to uh, McGill University. So there I completed a psychology degree. And at the time, McGill did not have a major in neuroscience. So I thought I'll take a, a minor in neuroscience. And then from there, I thought I would try to continue along the path of uh, graduate studies in psychology. Um, life kind of brought me to Edmonton and at the University of Alberta, the timeline for getting into graduate studies in psychology was a year longer than in neuroscience. So being a, a enthusiastic young student, I thought I'll go into neuroscience instead. So I started a master's in neuroscience. Um, and at the U of A, you have the potential to extend your master's into a PhD. So I thought, you know what, I'll do that as well. Um, so I ended up with a, a PhD in neuroscience from the U of A. I mean, when it's right there in front of you, why not? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you, exactly. don't, you didn't have to go like searching too far for it. Exactly. And you know, at that time, I, my, my plan then was to do a master's degree and then try to get into medical school, uh, like, like many students do. But I was fascinated by neuroscience. And I thought, I want to finish this PhD um, and then see where that takes me. So what about, what about neuroscience uh, specifically was like really caught you? Because I, um, I mean, I'm, I, I'm a music student. I, that's what catches my, my attention. And I know exactly what makes me tick about uh, music. Um, but what was it about neuroscience that really draw you, drew you to it other than, you know, the shorter wait time originally to, to get in? Yeah, sure. The, the brain is amazing. Uh, I think that's a good way to start. Uh, and neuroscience is really in its infancy when you think about it as a, as a discipline in science. Um, one of the first kind of documented pieces of evidence of neurons themselves is 
is only maybe 120 years old. So if you think about a field of science, um, it's brand new. And so with that, as well as the way that technology is progressing, there are just so many uh, amazing ways that we now can look inside the brain to try to figure out how it works. And spoilers, we don't know yet. We're still working on it. So I can't Stop tell you. Stop listening to the podcast right now. <laughs> yeah. We don't know anything. Uh, but yeah, so it's, it's amazing. And, and so what, what we do in our lab is a certain type of neuroscience called behavioral neuroscience that I'm sure we'll talk a lot about. That's different from the cellular neuroscience I did when I was a PhD student at the University of Alberta. Um, and so there are many you know, different branches of neuroscience itself um, you know, an example is a good friend of mine uh, during my PhD, his name is Jan, and he made these really cool medical devices where he would make video games to connect robotic arms so that patients could move the arm, which would feed back to the video game to allow patients to rehabilitate from stroke and spinal cord injury. So imagine someone's out in a remote environment, uh, they have one of these conditions, they don't have access to an uh, occupational physiotherapist. This device would allow them to work remotely and rehabilitate, um, which is also much more exciting than the traditional rehabilitation techniques like pull a peg out of a board, put it in one spot, pull it out, put it into another one. Um, so he made these games, you know, he made one for older individuals called Weedo that would involve an individual picking up plants from a garden. And so you're using very fine motor movement uh, and you know, it's, uh, if you didn't pick the weeds fast enough, they would take over and kill your garden. <laughs> I love that. Um, another cool example is there was a game he made for maybe younger individuals where you were a bartender and you had to pick up four <laughs> drinks. <laughs> oh gosh. Um, so the, the interesting thing is Jan and I both graduated around the same time with a PhD in neuroscience, yet he was essentially building video games to help rehabilitate stroke patients. And I was sticking electrodes into individual brain cells from rodent slice brain slices. So completely different things. Um, yet they still fall under the same discipline of neuroscience. Yeah. So you did your doctorate in cellular electrophysiology. Um, can you just tell us a little bit about what that is and what you were hoping to like learn from um, your doctoral research? Yeah, definitely. Um, we have about five hours to go over that, right? Yep. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Uh, so in a nutshell, we were basically trying to investigate properties of dendrites, um, which are the parts of neurons that receive information. That's the, the easiest way to explain it. Um, so we did that with a technique called intracellular recording, where we could place an electrode via a micromanipulator directly into a live brain cell. So this is under a microscope, and then with that electrode, we can monitor um, electrical potentials. So we can monitor excitatory postsynaptic potentials and action potentials that my 275 and 375 psych students love to learn about. Um, and uh, we can also then apply different stimuli, so patterns of activity, to try to emulate learning in certain ways. Okay. Um, as well as we can apply different pharmacological compounds or, different, in other words, different drugs to see how that affects uh, the properties of these cells. Yeah, because a lot of the work that you have done um, is focused on, like, effects of different compounds 
on the nervous system. So how did you move from, you know, doing research in cellular electrophysiology to then looking at, would you call it like behavioral neuroscience? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, how did you make that transition? Um, That's thanks to McEwen. So um, when I was uh, a PhD student, I taught a couple of classes at McEwen. Um, And then when I graduated and obtained my PhD, a position opened up here. So that's right when McEwen was on the cusp of becoming a university. Um, So that was pretty neat. And I thought, yeah, I'll apply. I'll see see if I can get lucky and get a job. And it turns out I did. Uh, So I still did maintain the collaboration with my old supervisor to wrap up some of the projects that I was working on. But at McEwen, um, we don't have the facilities. So mm-hmm. we don't have, you know, uh, a rodent facility where you have veterinarians, animal care techs constantly taking care of rats or, you know, other model organisms. Mm-hmm. So that's the first reason. It just simply wasn't feasible to do that here. Um, the second reason is, is, as you can imagine, the cost of those micro manipulators and the cost of the electrophysiology equipment uh, was, I would guess now, it's probably half a million dollars to set up a lab. Okay, so not like a, <laughs> a couple yeah. bucks you got laying around. <laughs> yeah, and so I had a, an interesting opportunity to try to come up with a research program that would be interesting scientifically but also um, something that was feasible for McEwen students to take part in and contribute to. So at the time, zebrafish were starting to become a very popular model organism. And so by model organism, I mean something that's in the medical world that researchers and uh, scientists use to potentially emulate what would happen to humans. So rodents are a very popular model organism, mice and rats. And zebrafish were becoming, you know, starting to become one. So I jumped on that bandwagon um, because zebrafish are relatively easy to house, not millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the behavioral neuroscience equipment that I needed, again, not $500,000. So it was within a reasonable budget, um, as well as really, really interesting. Because with the, the beginning of, of this animal, in, in terms of uh, the research world, there really weren't fundamental questions answered. So, you know, techniques that you can use to study behavioral neuroscience in, in, in mice and rats just hadn't been done in zebrafish yet. So it was, it was open for us to investigate those questions. And like worth it because obviously nobody's done it, right? So this is like... Uh, an opportunity for for yourself and McEwen to to really take advantage of something that hasn't been researched. So yeah. that's yeah, that's a that's a great reason to yeah. do it. Yeah, like before we move on though, I feel like like okay, so zebrafish um, are a good model to study because they actually like what about them makes them able to be used in studying processes like similar to human beings. Cause I think a lot of people like, okay, a, a rat or a mouse is a mammal. A pig is a mammal. Like these things, a monkey, a chimp, they're all mammals. So we can see ourselves as being related to them, but like you're going to study my brain using a fish. Yeah. <laughs> That's really cool. So can you give us and the listeners just um, a little bit of information on what makes zebrafish so great? Yeah, I definitely can. Um, I guess, 
you know, they're not the same, first off. Okay. <laughs> but we can use some of the fundamental principles um, and, and use that as a guide to what we'd expect to happen in humans. Uh, you know, humans have, we have about 86 billion neurons in our brains, um, whereas a fish has about 100,000, so a lot less. But the major neurotransmitter and neuromodulators are the same, and um, the major brain areas are somewhat the same. So forebrain, midbrain, hindbrain, we can say, yeah, those are in the zebrafish as well. Uh, so in terms of, of a model organism, they reproduce really quickly, so faster than you know rats and mice. Or rabbits? Uh, yeah, yeah, even rabbits. <laughs> even rabbits. Yeah. Okay, wow. Yeah. Prolific. Yeah, and uh, the genome's been sequenced. So a lot of researchers are really interested in, in genetic manipulation. Um, and there are a variety of genetic techniques and tools that can be used with, with fish, uh, zebrafish in particular, that are highly advanced. Okay, and just like... From other fish, are there any other fish other than zebrafish that kind of have that similar brain structure, or is that kind of unique to them? A lot of them do. Okay. Um, and, you know, zebrafish have just gained popularity, I think, because they're pretty robust. So they're easy to house, they're easy to maintain. Um, you know, they're, they're in the aquarium trade, they're all over the world. Uh, they just became this popular model organism. And I don't know if there was one point where just the tipping point was reached and they just became the fish to study in the medical world, but uh, they are. So. Okay. So and tell me, tell me how, how big does zebrafish get? Like, do you, do you, I know there's some fish that like only get as big as the tank you put them in and, and things like that, but yeah. like, what is a, is there like an ideal size that you work with in your field or do you like, once they get to a certain size, they can't help you anymore yeah no we study uh adult fish and that's they're maybe five centimeters long so they're okay. not they're not big um which again helps with space um <laughs> yeah. we can house a lot of them you know in our lab we at a given time we have a thousand fish in a small room and so they're happy they're healthy they're maintained well you know if we were studying sharks we would need giant space but obviously we're not we're here in edmonton with little zebra fish um and then we study them in an adjacent room and look at their behavior. And That's, go ahead. Well, I'm just the zebrafish is the fish from a fish called Wanda, right? It's Wanda. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? I've never seen that movie. Well, it's like um, they look kind of like an angelfish, but they're striped. They definitely have zebra stripes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That's crazy. Okay, never Trying mind. to describe to the people listening at home if you've never heard of a zebrafish and you don't have access to the internet. Well, I assumed everyone had seen a fish called Wanda, but all right. I've never even heard of it. <laughs> I've seen Finding Nemo. It's not that fish. All right. Okay, well, scratch that then. So how does it, um, like, they're so small and you have to study their brains. The brains, like, it must be mm -hmm. so hard to, to perhaps, mm -hmm. like, I guess it's the strategies, like, you're not taking... Are, are you taking, like you said, like you taking the brain slices from them, not like the similar to the rat, or are you? Are you? We do, uh, in some cases, dissect the brain itself in its entirety, which is, is actually very small, um, maybe three millimeters, something like that. Uh, but under a microscope with a little bit of practice, my students get really, really good at it. My hands are so shaky yeah. that like I doing little little tasks like that is tough for me, but... 
Um, yeah. Oh, okay. Um, so I just want to learn a little bit more about the lab. So you said you have about a thousand fish? At a given time. At yeah. a given time? Yeah. Okay. And do you have like a fish like tender? Do you tend the fish yourself? Can you just tell us a little bit about the lab? Because it sounds like you were part of getting this fish lab um, created up and mm. running. So can you tell us a little bit about that? That sounds very interesting. Yeah, for sure. So when I got hired, uh, Malika Shalom and I, uh, Malika is uh, uh, now the Dean of Arts and Science, but at the time was in the psych department. And her and I started the lab together. So we're obviously collaborators. We work on a lot of similar projects. Um, and so we started off from scratch, uh, designing the room, picking out all the equipment, picking out the, the aquatic habitat, which houses the fish. Um, and we started maintaining it ourselves. So fast forward 10 years, we now have an animal care technician who comes in to uh, maintain the water quality of the fish. So you have to check on the pH, the temperature, nitrates, nitrites, ammonia, um, conductivity, alkalinity, uh, and make sure they're with all within happy ranges, mm-hmm. healthy ranges for the fish. So when it began, we did all of that on weekends and our students did as well. But now it's great that we have a lot of help uh, from the research office to um, keep our fish uh, happy as well as uh, Aliyah does a lot of great breeding now. So we breed our fish in-house which is fantastic. Is there any kind of specific traits that you're looking for, like bigger brains? Or are you just breeding them for numbers? Yeah, just for numbers at this okay. point. Um, but as time moves forward, one of my dreams, I guess, scientific dreams, would be to, to start um, classifying them in terms of different behaviors and then breeding those fish to see if we can isolate those behaviors through breeding. Um, similar to a lot of programs that have happened with rats and and um, silver foxes, for example, in Russia, you can get these tame versus bold foxes after eight generations of breeding. So um, eventually, I think we'll get there. Uh, but we have a new lab being constructed that should be ready in the the spring of 2022. Okay. And it's at that point we can start doing some of these cool breeding techniques. Um, but right now, we just want happy, healthy fish for experiments and that's 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 no short order that is like that that's a lot of work i i have a family member who who dealt in exotic animals and and specifically fish so growing up our entire lives like she always had multiple 500 gallon tanks in in her basement and and had grown um i think the the largest fish she had grown were alligator gar Mm. fish which those are types of fish that will grow to whatever size you put them in and so they outgrew the 500-gallon tank. And if you know what an alligator gar is, it's essentially like an alligator without legs. Um, and they get extremely long, so they got to a point where they couldn't turn around in the water and they just kind of ha- had to sit there. So she actually donated them to the Calgary Zoo. And now, well, they're probably past now because it's been quite quite some time, but they had grown, you know, uh, like 15 feet mm-hmm. of these fish. Like, it's insane. But anyways, I know how much work it can be to, mm-hmm. to maintain a lab like that. So I'm, it's great that you guys have the resources available to um, do that. All right, well, we're going to take a quick break and uh, hear a little bit from our non-paid ad sponsors. Is it kombucha or kombucha or kombucha? Who knows? Stay safe among the quagmire of pronunciation pitfalls by picking up a bottle of bucha. 
It's Edmonton's premier butcher brewery, crafted with care using simple ingredients, and it comes in all sorts of fruits and flowery flavors. Um, there's peach, there's lavender, and there's even a snozberry. Like Willy Wonka. Yep, snozberry. Um, yeah, grab some at McEwen's Griffin's Landing Convenience Store, visit bucha.ca to order online, or check out the Bucha Bunker just off White Ave and grab a bottle straight from the source. Welcome back to Research Recasted. I'm here with Brittany Eklund, and we're talking with Dr. Trevor Hamilton about all things tigerfish, zebrafish, zebra not tigerfish, zebrafish. Uh, yeah, so just jumping back in, before we talk about some of the studies you've done, um, I would like to know how do you study fish behavior um and how do you kind of elicit some of these behaviors like anxiety or depression or so we use a lot of behavioral neuroscience techniques uh so that means we basically video record uh how they move around according to different stimuli so one of the classic tests is uh, just an open field test you put a fish in a circular or a square arena and you look at its movement uh, so we can use a we use a motion tracking software system, which is pretty neat because then we can quantify uh, the locomotion. So we can look at the distance it moves. We can look at the the meandering. In other words, if it's going straight or if it's going sideways, uh, and we can look at the immobility or high mobility states. So first off, if we have a normal fish, we can look and assess how it's moving. Uh, and then if we environmentally manipulate something or give a drug a, or give a fish a certain drug. That, that can change. So locomotion itself could change. So that's one of the more basic behavioral tests we do. And then we can uh, get a bit more advanced. And some of the tests we do involve a, a similar open field test, but then we put a novel object in the middle. So now we can look at how bold that fish is. If a fish is bold, it's going to go and approach that object, check it out, basically take a good look at it. If a fish is more fearful or more shy, it's going to tend to stay away from that. So believe it or not, if we give a fish a little dose of ethanol prior to the novel object approach test, they will check it out. They'll, they'll relax and they'll go and explore this new object. Um, so that's one test of uh, anxiety-like or boldness behavior. There's another one called the light-dark test. You basically have a rectangular arena. One side's dark, one side's light. And the fish that are... Um, more anxious will stay in the dark side. The fish that are relaxed will go check out the light side. Um, you know, there, there's probably five or six more, but a, another common one we use in the lab is a tank diving test. So zebrafish itself, you know, imagine it's in its, its normal habitat, swimming around. Um, some of the predators for zebrafish come from above. So birds basically fly down and scoop them and eat them. So uh, an anxious fish is going to tend to be near the bottom of the water column. A fish that's more relaxed will float everywhere. It'll swim around. It'll go more towards the top. So simply by looking at where the fish spend near the top or near the bottom can be an index of its anxiety-like behavior. Um, so those, those are some of the anxiety tests we do. We also have done tests with mirrors to look at aggression. We've uh, done a variety of learning and memory tests as well. Yeah, and that's something that I find really interesting because I feel like it's one of those things you hear that like a fish can only remember nine seconds and apparently that is not true. 
Um, so what do you, like, what can you tell us, um, that might surprise us? Like about fish memories, what have you learned? Learned a great deal since I started studying fish. Um, so step back when I studied cellular electrophysiology, looking at rat, uh, rat brains, I didn't really at the time ever know that I would become a fish scientist studying <laughs> fish. Um, and so I came into this and I learned a lot when I started looking at what we do know about fish themselves. I guess the first thing to be aware of is uh, there are an estimated 32,500 species of fish. So imagine that range of diversity across the planet. You know, we're humans, but there's 32,000 some odd species. So those fish species will vary in their ability uh, to do many things, especially uh, memory rel related to our conversation here. So some fish, you know, may have a three-second memory. There could be a couple, but for the most part, there are some fish that remember things for a lifetime. So if you think about salmon that spawn, they spawn in freshwater in a river, they swim out to sea, live their life at sea, then they swim back to the original site where they were spawned. So that fish has a lifetime memory of where it was born. Um, and there's, there's so many other cool examples of, of fish memory. Um, there are fish called gobies that live in the intertidal zone. So they live basically where the tide goes in and out in the ocean. You know, when the tide is, is in, there's lots of water there. When the tide goes out, it's just the, there's some basically little pools left over. Mm -hmm. So these fish remember where those little pools or the little holes are. And it's, this was one of the earlier studies on fish memory. So when the tide is out and the fish are in their little holes, um, if a predator spooks them, they'll literally launch themselves out of those holes and land into an adjacent hole full of water. So they have to remember, obviously, where all these yeah. holes are. <laughs> we'll have know? an escape route. Exactly. They know, like, I know where that hole is. I'm going to launch over there. <laughs> <laughs> Boom. <laughs> and then they, they nail it. And so scientists studied this because... You know, it's not like they just jumped and landed on the rocks. They could go right in those. Uh, they knew exactly where the holes were. And I think that's been documented that about a 40-day span of this. So they could remember for about 40 days where the, spatially, where their safe zones were. Um, so that's one kind of cool feat of fish memory that goes back historically. So it's been known, a lot of these things have been known scientifically for a long time. And I've, I'm still trying to figure out where this Three second. Where did you hear about that? I don't know, but I feel like Discovery I Discovery Channel. It was a it was an experiment that they did on MythBusters. Was it? Yeah. I think it was. They yeah. did with goldfish where they had a maze and and they incrementally added more barriers in the maze so that the fish could go through it. Um and then they I forget what the rest of it was, but that's what I remember seeing about a goldfish going through holes and yeah, trying to remember where to go. Yeah, it's just one of those things you hear as a kid growing up and it just sticks with you because it always seemed like wrong to me because I'm like, in order to like learn and adapt and to survive and like you get these big, huge fish that are maybe a hundred years old, like that sturgeon yeah. that they caught, like they need to be able to like learn and navigate the system to survive that long, so... Yeah. I mean, my short-term memory, I would say, is, you know, a little past three seconds. But, <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah. My, my long-term memory is a little bit better, but my short-term is, is not that great. Yeah. 
I still use Google Maps, and I've lived in this city for like 15 years. So, Ooh. Um, so okay. So now I want to dive in um, to some of the studies you've done previously um, using substances like ethanol, which is alcohol, correct? Yes. Okay, yes. Um, LSD, terpenes, fluoxetine, modafinil, scopolipine, nicotine. Um, how do you decide what kind of substance you want to give a fish or what behavior you want to study? Like, kind of where, where do the ideas come from? So we, we start off with, with big research questions. Um, and so one question you could say that we had is, you know, can fish become addicted to ethanol? So ethanol being uh, one alcohol, there are many types of alcohol, but mm -hmm. alcohol as we know it in vodka, beer, all that is, is ethanol. So okay. So we can just say alcohol. Alcohol. Right? Yeah, yes. alcohol. Um, so can fish actually get addicted to alcohol? So we had that question a while ago. Um, and we investigated that by repeatedly giving them different concentrations of alcohol for different periods of time. And then we looked at whether or not they would uh, experience withdrawal behavior. So just like a human that would, let's say, consume a certain amount of alcohol every day for two weeks, you have neuroadaptations that happen in your brain. When you stop consuming alcohol, your brain has adapted. So when the presence of alcohol is gone, there are going to be certain behavioral states that you see. So the question is, can that happen in fish? Um, so that was one of our research questions back in, I think, 2013. Uh, and we found, yeah, fish experience withdrawal just like a human would. Um, I think it, like... Are you talking like a hangover or yeah, like get, full on they, they like detoxing? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, more along the detox lines. But uh, so we only measured uh, behaviorally their anxiety-like behavior. Okay. So a human, for example, that would uh, have let's say three beers a day for two weeks. If they're not given alcohol for another two days, and we study that person, there's a good chance that person is going to be more anxious. Wait, 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 wait. So, are you studying humans and fish at the same time, or are you using existing studies other people have done? And how do students get involved in these these specific studies? Would you like to sign up for a study? <laughs> I, 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 uh, maybe. Uh, we just unfortunately do fish in our lab. Um, <laughs> Yeah, we'd have to go through a whole set of different human ethical permissions to, uh, to administer ethanol to humans. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, so in our lab, we just do fish. And in some ways, that can be more beneficial because we can tightly control all the variables. So we know those fish came from McEwen. We know those fish are housed in the exact same spot. They've undergone the exact same conditions with the only difference being the presence or absence of that alcohol. Yeah, very controlled. Very controlled. For sure. So something like, how do you give a fish ethanol, or sorry, alcohol? Like, how do you administer that, I guess? That's uh, another benefit of the zebrafish, I will argue, um, is uh, we can basically take the fish and put it in a beaker and put whatever we want in there, in the water itself. Okay. So then they'll absorb it, they'll take it in through their gills, and... A certain amount of it will get into their bloodstream, into their brain. So if we had a, another animal like a, a rodent, um, say a rat, if you want to administer a drug to a rat, you can inject it, which is invasive. Mm -hmm. 
or you could potentially, you know, put a nose cone on it and apply it that way. Again, invasive. Whereas with zebrafish, we can simply put that compound in water. And for the most part, we know because other researchers have done the work for us and looked at the blood alcohol level concentration. So we can basically use past research to estimate uh, the amounts of alcohol in the fish that we study. So it gets in there, it has a similar effect. And then just like humans, um, when we take them out of the alcohol, they will metabolize it and excrete it. Okay. That's so super interesting. You have to like find out the proper, proper parts per million of alcohol. Like when, when we try to figure out as humans, you know, what is a standardized drink and how much are you allowed to have before you're considered intoxicated or, or whatever else. Finding out what a tiny little fish needs to get that little buzz on, that's, that's, that takes a lot. <laughs> and like, do they exhibit the same kind of like motor, like do they get actually like drunk? If with high down. enough doses, <laughs> yeah, they, they do. Yeah, because um, you mentioned that the fish that you had given ethanol to actually acted bolder, which, mm-hmm. again, I'm like, okay, we've all, you know, been emboldened maybe yeah. after a beer or two. Um, so, yeah, are there, like, really any differences between the zebrafish and the human brain when you administer, like, alcohol to it? So we're, we're looking behaviorally, and we also can look neurochemically. So we can, again, take the brains out and see if different levels of neurotransmitters change. And that part of it is in collaboration with McEwen's chemistry department with Dr. Matt Ross. So him and I have been working together for a while and we're almost ready to, to get concrete data with a lot of our zebrafish brain research. Um, so the next time we talk, I can maybe update you with that. Yeah, no, very um, cool. But uh, so one of the things we've done that's along the lines of what Dylan was discussing is we can administer different patterns of of alcohol. So we can give fish a daily dose or in some of our research, we gave them a weekly binge. (laughs) So over a four week, four week period of time, um, the fish either got, they got the exact same amount of alcohol in total, but either weekly binge or daily moderate. And it turns out that long story short, the binge drinking is worse in a fish and in a human. Oh my gosh, that's I've heard that, but like I've never understood um, the process why. So can you speak to like how the binge fish differed from maybe like the more casual social drinking mm-hmm. fish? Yeah, and so just to take a step back, we didn't do the human research, but I'm mm-hmm. basing my findings on what other uh, researchers have found. Uh, and with the weekly binge, you have greater neuroadaptation that happens. So you're going to cause greater brain changes that what we found in our fish did not go back to normal after a two week period of time in without any alcohol. Whereas the daily moderates did go back to normal. That makes me feel a little bit better about myself when I did drink. It was like, okay, I had a beer a day, but I never, um, I mean, I went crazy a couple of times, you know, being in rock bands touring Canada, you get, you get a little crazy, but, uh, you know, when I was home from tour, it was, it was the, you know, I had a beer with dinner and that's it. Yeah, I think... Hopefully like, the damage wasn't that bad. I've <laughs> heard the thing with that. I've also heard it with cigarettes is that it's better to like maybe smoke one or two cigarettes a week rather than people who tend to smoke a lot like on the weekend. Um, and I know you didn't study that in fish, but you did administer nicotine to some fish. Um, 
and you were studying its effect on anxiety? So yeah, similar to with alcohol, we were, we were looking at repeated nicotine administration and what that does to the behavior of the fish. So with the two projects, the idea is, and the, the kind of the concept with a model, like a medical model like zebrafish, is can we create withdrawal due to a drug, either alcohol or nicotine in fish? Mm-hmm. And then if we can do that, sweet. Now can we try to remedy that, um, the, the withdrawal state that happens? Because we know that with smoking and alcohol, one of the, the major uh, considerations is when people try to quit, they just have this withdrawal state that drives them to go and drink more or smoke more. Yeah. So is there something we can do to try to alleviate that stress or that, in some cases, anxiety-like behavior? Um, So with nicotine, we gave acute doses, and we found that those acute doses at certain concentrations made the fish feel nice and relaxed, and they explored the novel object more. Um, And when we gave it to them repeatedly during withdrawal, they were more anxious, just like you'd expect in a human. Mm -hmm. So that's the first step. Okay, now we we have shown that this model works. Uh, so now what our lab does is we're looking at how we can potentially try to treat that. So it could be through pharmacolo- pharmacological means. It could be through um, environmental means. But that's where the uh, interesting idea of, of microdosing LSD comes in. Mm-hmm. Well, please yeah. tell us all. You Let's can't segue just right. okay. <laughs> go straight Let's in. Let's do it. Uh, yeah, so microdosing um, with LSD is something that I've heard kind of increasingly people are like, increase your productivity, um, do whatever. So I think it is science that is kind of very in vogue right now. Um, And you are giving LSD to zebrafish. Please tell us all about it. And a Um, caveat real quick is not advocating the use of of drugs by any means, but uh, just the study of them. (laughs) Yeah, I think it was Reddit that started a lot of this. and there were Reddit some, starts everything. Yeah. Didn't Reddit start the big collapse of the the financial thing with with GameStop? Didn't they? Is wasn't that a Reddit thing? They contributed. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Malika, you know, Doctor Shalomon in the lab has been studying LSD and psilocybin and mescaline um, for years now in our lab. And she found very robust or very significant effects with LSD itself at, at high doses. And so what we're interested in is we know the high doses have an effect on fish, but could these low doses also do something like people, as we know, microdose, especially in San Francisco and Silicon Valley and things. Um, people take LSD at very low levels that won't make them hallucinate or trip out. Um, and equate it to having like a cup of coffee or something. So they have different patterns of microdosing these drugs. And anecdotally, or via their claims, they say that it helps them out. You know, they have better thought patterns, they feel better, they're more relaxed, less depressed. Um, but the problem is these are all anecdotes. So scientifically, that's not worth very much. We need to actually look at proper peer-reviewed double-blinded studies in humans to know whether or not this is actually true. Um, and there haven't been that many done yet that I can conclusively say, yeah, that's definitely has an impact. There are some that show it might. There's some that show that it may just be a placebo effect. In other words, people think that they're microdosing these drugs and 
their brain ultimately creates the situation that, yeah, I feel great, but it's not the LSD itself that's doing it. It's the people's expectations. Um, so either way, the zebrafish for us are a great model to test whether or not microdosing LSD could help alleviate alcohol withdrawal. So in other words, if it can help uh, alcoholics decrease the stress when they stop drinking. And if we, uh, if we take a step back to history, um, some of the very first experiments on LSD were done in Canada and Saskatchewan. I did not know that. That's very cool. I heard something about, not maybe not that, but um, like in the war, a lot of experiments on soldiers and LSD. But uh, I don't know if that's what these studies were with. Yeah, that may have been experimenting in a loose sense of giving people LSD to see what happens. Um, but some of the first, at least North American studies, were done uh, in Saskatchewan in the 50s with alcoholics, so with alcoholic humans. And they thought, let's give them doses of LSD to see if this can alleviate their, their drinking. Uh, and then the U.S. kind of spearheaded a war on drugs mm -hmm. that um, – essentially stopped a lot of the potentially beneficial uh, studies on psychedelic drugs and their, their treatment for a variety of things. Um, and that's kind of coming back in the recent years. Um, some researchers went back to the old studies that were done in the 50s and did a reanalysis of, of some of those and found maybe there were some significant findings. Maybe it did help treat alcoholism. And again, I, I just the caveat is I don't recommend taking high doses of LSD if you drink too much. That's not what I'm saying mm -hmm. because it's not, it hasn't been conclusively shown yet. But some of these studies provided uh, some hints that it could help out. Yeah, or be like tailored into a therapy. Um, mm -hmm. I know psilocybin, a psychedelic, um, is kind of, I think it's going to be the next probably legal therapy if it's not already being administered, um, I think in like terminal mm -hmm. yep. cancer patients to help them kind of cope with death. Yeah. Um, and the idea of it, I did just watch that Fantastic Fungi uh, mm. movie and yeah, they just do like a guided like high dose mushroom trip and get in touch with whatever. And I was like, oh my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think that's on the forefront. Um, it's definitely seems like a popular next option after, I mean, now marijuana was legalized and now recreationally. Um, but LSD, I think, has kind of maybe a reputation as being a little bit harder. Mm -hmm. Hardcore, I guess, more hardcore. <laughs> um, so for the LSD in the zebrafish, are you doing the same thing where you're just dropping it in the water and then they, mm -hmm. and these are the fish that have already been conditioned with the ethanol? Yeah. Exactly. So okay. the, the first step was to simply microdose the zebrafish to see if there were any effects. Mm -hmm. And we didn't really see any, which isn't the worst thing. It means that it didn't do anything to their normal behavior. Um, didn't make them jump through plate glass windows or yeah. behave aberrantly. They just, they're pretty normal. So now the second step is we get different groups of fish, obviously some controls, some dosed with ethanol, um, and then at a certain period of time in their alcohol exposure, we give some of them microdosed LSD to see if that can alleviate the effects of the withdrawal. Uh, and so those results are currently being analyzed. Okay. 
Okay. Yeah. So we can't say too much, but I think that that's a really interesting um, study. So are you just doing LSD? Because you mentioned mescaline and psilocybin as well. Do you Are you studying those in the fish or are there any future plans to maybe study those compounds? We found in our lab that LSD had the, the, the best potential um, effect to, to explore. We found very little effect of the other two. Okay. And so we thought, LSD, it's working. Let's try this first, and then we'll go from there. Okay. And, like, I have a question about where do you get this stuff? I was going to ask, but I just, like, I didn't want to. I'm like, where, like, how do you synthesize your own LSD? Or, like, I don't even know the problem. Please tell us. (laughs) I don't know. It's it's probably not as exciting as you'd hope. Um, We just buy it from drug companies. Okay. So there are big companies that reliably make uh, good quality compounds. So Sigma Aldrich is one that we get most of our compounds from. And so with buying it from a, a larger scientific company, we get a statement of purity. So we know that it is what it's supposed to be. Unlike if we were to get it somewhere else. Yeah. Well, unethically, like, <laughs> yeah. I didn't even know that was a thing that they actually just sell this stuff for scientific research. I guess it makes sense studying many different things. Yeah. From within the community, do you, are you seeing more and more research into these kinds of compounds happening? Um, like, would you say, like, what have you noticed, I guess? Yeah. In the last decade, it's becoming a lot more popular. Um, and I can say in the scientific community, as well as even just in my neuropharmacology class, a lot more students are writing about uh, psychedelics and their potential benefit to you know, medical health conditions. Um, so it's, be- it's becoming more aware. Uh, people are becoming more aware of it. There's less stigma against mm-hmm. um, psychedelics. Uh, and so I'm not going to say it's going to be revolutionary, but it, it has the potential to help out in a great deal of, of situations. Um, with more study, we have to we have to um, get some good conclusions down first before it goes to human uh, too many human trials. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then I just wanted to talk about the other kind of compound that you're studying right now, which are terpenes. Hmm. So can you, like you said, they're found in cannabis. Um. Is terpene part of the THC? Like, is it the psychotropic or is it more like, I don't know about weed very yeah, much. Yeah, no, so that's like, okay. Um, yeah, can you just explain like what terpenes are um, and why you're studying them in the fish and kind of what you're finding? Yeah, for sure. So um, cannabinoids, THC and cannabidiol are the classic two compounds that you'll see on a label if you walk into a cannabis weed shop They'll, they'll list those two compounds. Let's give you certain percentages. Um, I won't get into the indica sativa debate because, <laughs> yeah, that's uh, it's, a, it's a totally different one. But long story short, there's been so much breeding of these different plants. Um, it's not whether or not it's an indica or sativa. It's the concentrations of chemicals within the marijuana itself that has the sedative or the energy-producing effects. So anyways... THC and CBD uh, are two well-studied compounds. There's been a lot on them, and there's a lot more coming out. Um, But terpenes are another class of compounds that are present in cannabis as well as other plants. 
And they, for the most part, give plants different aromas. Oh, okay. So like olfactory. Mm-hmm. So kind of like an essential oil. Like yes. You're so you're studying how they. Sorry, I'm just trying to wrap my head around it. So an aromatic compound, mm-hmm. and you're studying it in the fish and looking at how it modifies their behavior? Yeah, exactly. Um, so say you go and you smell a certain type of weed that smells like blueberries or something. Mm-hmm. Um, that aroma comes from a terpene within cannabis. So that compound definitely makes it smelly, but it also could have effects on the brain and behavior. So that's what we're trying to get at. Not necessarily if the fish likes the smell of it, although we are moving towards that, but it's whether or not it has effects on the behavior of the fish itself. So whether or not, you know, there's some claims in, in that certain terpenes in rodents, maybe even in humans, decrease anxiety. So that's an easy question for us to answer with, uh, with what we have in the lab. So we've, we have a paper now that's under review. Hopefully it'll come out soon. But we found that uh, limonene, is one, obviously, limes, smells like limes. Um, and uh, what was the other one? Linalool um, had very significant anxiety-reducing effects in the fish. Um, and so in order to, to take a look at cannabis itself and see what the effects might be in different strains, it's important to look at, yes, the THC, yes, the CBD, but also the terpenes and the content of terpenes. Um, and this is something that a lot of growers will do. They'll do. They'll use analytical chemistry to take their weed and look at the exact components of yes THC, yes CBD, but also terpenes. And so I think this is moving forward. This will help um, the public and researchers understand what certain type of weed will do to somebody. Yeah, because I mean, a lot of this is so new, um, it being, you know, legal so recently. It's only been a couple of years. And, you know, there's not enough information about a lot of that. Everyone's like, oh, I don't really, you know, indica sativa. <laughs> like that, like you said, that debate. Yeah. Um, and I don't know nearly enough about cannabis uh, at all. So um, it's really cool to see that there is more research being done now that this is such a readily available thing for people. Yeah, I'm just trying to like wrap my head around it. So the terpenes are an aromatic. So in the fish, do the aromatics actually affect the way that the brain functions like alcohol or something else would or the actual THC? Okay. And so it's it not something be, you remove and give. It's like it's that's just the whole package. Yeah, we so we have the terpenes isolated. Yes. So it's an individual terpene. It's not like we take uh, an extract from a plant yeah. from cannabis. Not that. We have the exact terpene just by itself. So we know there's no THC, there's no CBD anywhere else. It's just that one thing that the fish will probably detect uh, through their, their olfactory system, but yeah. they'll also take it in through their gills. So we don't know if it's they're smelling it or okay. it going into their brain quite yet. That's what we're moving towards looking at but we know that that substance itself will have those effects. So if it is it going into the brain, we now know that terpenes on their own 
have this have an effect on the brain so that's really cool yeah yeah, yeah it just exactly. sounded like when you were explaining how like growers could like manipulate the amount of terpenes i was like so if the weed smells more it will get you higher is that <laughs> it could be depends on the terpene yeah because yeah. okay i was just trying to figure out like when you say this kind of like olfactory like aromatic thing i'm like oh like aromatherapy but I mean, while aromatherapy might make you feel good, I mean, maybe it does make you feel really good. Mm -hmm. I don't know. So yeah, but I don't think you're with aromatherapy. I'm not an expert, but mm -hmm. you're smelling it. You're not taking it within. It's not like you're drinking. Oh, you're not like inhaling. Not like it. you're drinking or inhaling. Okay. Yeah. Whereas with cannabis, you're actually smoking that compound itself. Okay. Um, Can you eat them? Like, would a terpene like if you ate it, would it act the same way? It could. Um, ingestion of terpenes through edibles if it gets into the bloodstream via an edible or smoking it could it both they both have potential to cross the blood brain barrier and get to those brain areas that can change behavior okay. yeah wow that's super interesting uh yeah do you want to take another quick little break here yeah let's take a little break You've been listening to Research Recast at the Knowledge Mobilization Podcast. And we'll be right back after this quick public service announcement. We would like to take this opportunity to ask our listeners to consider supporting local music venues, bars, and restaurants who have been among some of the hardest hit with the new curfew restrictions in Edmonton and throughout Alberta. Places like River City Revival House, The Starlight Room, 9910, The Common... Evolution Wonder Lounge, and so many more other great establishments that are so essential to the art and culture that is Edmonton and Alberta. Go for a pint, grab some food after work or after class, be responsible, be safe, wear a mask. You can still support these businesses in a safe and sustainable way throughout these difficult times. Bring us back in. Welcome back to Research Recasted. I'm Bernie Eklund. I'm sitting here with my lovely co-host, Dylan Cave, and Dr. Trevor Hamilton, and we've been talking about zebrafish and LSD. Um, and I just want to take a step back in time here for a moment. Um, something that jumped out to me from your research was a study you did on scopolamine. Am I saying that right? Yeah, scopolamine. Yeah, and... For the listeners out there, if you've ever traveled, it's like that little patch for motion sickness. I mm -hmm. take it all the time. I get very, very sick on airplanes. So I always have scopolamine patches. Um, but you gave it to fish, not for motion sickness, which I thought was kind of funny um, because they're on the motion ocean. in the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> motion in the ocean. Um, but for anxiety and depression. And so I guess the first thing that jumped out to me is how do you study depression in fish? Um, and then a little bit about why the findings that are being kind of talked about in humans anecdotally that this drug can be used to cure these things or treat these things um, is very different than studies that have been done in rats, which are so commonly used in research. So yeah, can you tell us a little bit about depressed fish? I can try. Um, okay. First, I think it's important to talk about humans for a second and depression in general. It's, mm -hmm. it's multifaceted. It's very complex. Um, we don't know exactly how it occurs in the brain. 
and there's no reliable treatment that we can say, yep, this always works for a depressed person because it's such a, a complex issue. So that means that people are searching for ways to treat depression. So we came across a couple of research articles where studies uh, in humans showed that scopolamine, this compound that's commonly given for, uh, for motion sickness and even scuba diving as well, um, it had these effects on uh, depressed people. It decreased their anxiety and decreased their depression. Um, some other studies in rodents found that it didn't do that at all. It did something opposite. So scopolamine is also a, a drug that's given to produce amnesia. So in a lot of animal models, high doses of scopolamine basically stop memory systems from working. So it's a, it's a, it's a way we can look at a how physiologically do memory systems work and when the memory system's not working properly, again, are the ways that we can remedy this or try to fix it. So in, in rats, that's commonly why it's given. Um, and I think there are a couple of zebrafish studies as well. Um, so we started thinking, well, in the zebrafish studies, could it be that the researchers who see these effects on memory uh, it's really because it's just decreasing the anxiety in the fish. So the memory tests aren't working properly. Yeah. Does that make sense? It's like it forgot that it was afraid of something. <laughs> yeah. Or, or if maybe it didn't have any effects on the memory system at all. And it was working on the anxiety system. So, uh, you know, say you're doing a memory test and you're a little bit anxious. Mm -hmm. You're going to perform a certain way. And then they give you some scopolamine or, or alcohol and you're really relaxed and chill. Your memory results could differ. So it may not be that the drug itself affected the memory systems. It could be that it did something different and altered the outcome of that test. Um, so that's kind of what we wanted to investigate is in zebrafish, would lower doses of scopolamine um, affect anxiety and anxiety-like behavior? Because um, we can't ask the fish, you know, are you anxious? We yeah. can only look through these tests of anxiety. That's why we call it anxiety-like behavior, not anxiety per se. Um, so that's why I keep saying anxiety-like, mm -hmm. so you and the listeners understand that. Um, yeah, so that was our basic question is, is, does this drug at low doses affect anxiety? And we found just like in humans, it did have these anxiety-relieving or anxiolytic effects. Okay, and like, what interests me so much is why do you think that the findings in rats were so different from those in fish and people? Like what's the gap there? Like what's, huh? Yeah. It's, it's kind of funny that the fish results are more similar to the human results than the rodent result, results are. And it could be for a huge number of reasons, just the, the doses given the method of administration we talked about before. Um, putting a fish in a beaker full of drug is different than injecting a rat mm -hmm. full of uh, scopolamine. Um, it could be the procedures used by the experimenters. So there's a wide um, array of reasons why there could be these, these differing results. Um, and there's no direct answer. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it just like jumped out at me as being like a very curious kind of, like it didn't compute um, but I guess in science, a lot of times things just don't make sense and we don't get to know right away or ever, perhaps. Mm -hmm. um, 
so but i mean finding finding um subjects that are as like to humans or like experience kind of the similar things um i mean that's a good starting point i think like you found something that is is reacting similarly to what the way humans do mm-hmm. so that's a good starting point for you to say this is worth researching for us yeah exactly exactly and like most research it led to many other questions Mm -hmm. so you try to answer one question and you find seven other questions a hundred percent um which leads me to your study on a novel method of drug administration to multiple zebrafish i have to ask did you work on this study and on this kind of novel method of drug administration just by virtue of the fact that you were administering drugs to so many fish like what was the process like before like what did you why study a novel method so it's it's important and again with zebrafish being this relatively novel model organism um it means a lot of the procedures are not dialed they're not they're, they're not as good as they could be so when we were using the older methods of, of administration, it would involve taking the, the tank out of the habitat that contained 15 fish, you scoop one out with a net, and then you place that fish into the beaker containing the drug of interest for whatever given amount of time. Um, and then you scoop it out with your net again and put it into be, your behavioral test. And that's the way an acute administration would work if we're gonna administer it once. Mm-hmm. And so that little bit of netting stress is okay. Um, it's not ideal, but uh, that's why we also have control groups. So a control fish would would have no drug, and we compare that to the drug. So that's all fine and good. But now imagine a repeated dosing study where we're going to dose a fish with, let's say, alcohol for three weeks. Yeah, like a little bit every day. Mm-hmm, exactly. So if we use that same way of thinking, where we'd scoop the one fish out and put it into a beaker, we're netting that fish. Uh, a lot more than it should be netted. So what we realized was there there should be a better way, a more efficient way of doing this. It also takes time. A student has to net 15 different fish. So um, we basically inserted these plastic pieces that are intended on uh, helping collect eggs when fish breed. So they're inserts that go within the tanks that the fish are housed in. So by doing that, that meant we could grab these inserts containing all 15 fish and put all 15 fish into that alcohol um, for a given amount of time. So A, we're not netting them, so we're not causing the stress. And B, now we know all of those 15 fish have been dosed for the exact same amount of time um, in that solution. Mm -hmm. And when we're done, we simply take that insert out containing all the fish and put it back in the original tank. Kind of hard to describe um, without pictures, but... Is that, yeah. is that make oh, we're sense? coming for a tour. Don't <laughs> yeah. get me wrong. We're coming for a one-minute documentary tour. Yeah, nice. 100%. Okay. And so with that study, like, do you know of any other um, people studying fish that have adopted this this method? I think other people have. So it's been cited uh, a good amount. Um, the next step would be to officially test whether or not that reduces stress in the fish. So we assume it does because we're not netting them, but we didn't actually empirically test that. Okay. So Are there sign- plans to like do so? Maybe someday. Okay. That would be a great, great idea. I mean, it'd be cool to have like the Hamilton method yeah. of like, <laughs> yeah. you know, getting fish to party, I think, which would be exciting. 
Um, you got a little swim up bar and everything. Yeah. Uh, so I guess something that's a little bit less fun. Mm-hmm. Let's dive right in. Um, you have also worked on research studying acidification of the ocean. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about how you got involved with this and kind of uh, where you've done this research? Yeah, definitely. My uh, This is a bit of a story from grad school. So one of my good friends uh, when I was a, a grad student at U of A, Martin Trascares, was in biology. So he got a PhD in biology. Then he went and did a postdoc at Cornell in, in New York. And then he got a faculty position at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography at, at UCSD. Um, and so when we were students, we basically played basketball together and had you know, a couple beverages every now and then. Um, so we're just good buddies. And then around the same time he got his faculty job, I got my faculty job and started up fish research. So we were talking one day and he said, why don't you come down to San Diego and do some work with me? I said, sure, that sounds great. Not thinking that it would, I mean, hoping it would lead to something, but I mean, he's in a different discipline. How mm-hmm. are we going to, how's this going to work out? Turns out great. So his idea was, you know, ocean acidification is a major threat, potential threat to um, oceans in general. And it was just starting to be studied within the context of behavior and behavioral neuroscience. So I brought my equipment down there and that's when we started in about 2012, I believe, studying a fish called uh, the rockfish, the Californian rockfish. So we exposed it to seven days of of elevated CO2 and then measured its behavior and found that, you know, those fish had altered levels of behavior after seven days of high CO2. Okay. Yeah. And so, I mean, it's uh, since then, now fast forward 10 years, I've done studies as well with pink salmon exposed to elevated CO2, um, with the Californian blacksmith fish as well. And in our lab, we've studied the freshwater zebrafish, which we've talked about already. Uh, and the results are not consistent. So. Okay. Well, you did mention like there's so many different species mm-hmm. of fish. Um, and I feel like a species is not just like a variety. It's like they're very distinctive individual species. So it makes sense that not all of them would react maybe in the same, same way. way. Mm-hmm. Um, in fre- like, fresh water versus salt water and like the salmon that it, it yeah. just dabbles in both. Exactly. So, what are kind of some of the, out of these studies, like what are some of the behavioral changes in fish that um, you noticed and that we might see increasing as this acidification of the oceans continues to increase? So we saw um, changes in some types of behavior. So we did see some alterations in anxiety-like behavior in some fish, but not other fish. We also saw changes in, in boldness in pink salmon at about the seven-week stage while they're still in freshwater. Um, and so the thing is, it's really difficult to predict because we're taking fish from a certain life stage and then all of a sudden increasing dramatically the level of CO2 they're experiencing while we're keeping the control fish at a very regulated level of CO2 and other parameters. And that's not the same as what they'd experience in their natural habitat. Yeah. So a lot of fish already undergo these massive changes in pH and carbon dioxide levels in the ocean due to upwelling is one 
specific example. Sorry, what's upwelling? Um, that's when the ocean basically cycles itself. Um, okay. And I'm not an oceanographer by any means, but it, it results in drastic changes in pH. Um, it's almost like the certain currents force certain parts of the ocean to move into the intertidal zone. Okay. So you have these dramatically different conditions okay. that occur. There's, well, there's those things like red tide as well, right? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I'm where you can't fish certain fish because it's essentially poison at that point in time. I don't know anything about it really, but other than I know that at red tide, you're not allowed to go fishing. Okay. And that's a form of, uh, I think those are cyanobacteria. Um, I may be wrong, but it's a type of bacteria that causes the, the red tide events. Um, which is a total random aside. I did study some cyanobacteria at Scripps Institution of Oceanography okay. as well with a collaborator, Javi. And Scripps is a very great place to do research, but it also sits right on the ocean where there's a great surf break. <laughs> so what do you do for your time off of research? It's very refreshing and, and a good idea to get in the ocean and try to surf, which is, I, I, I don't know if, have you tried surfing before? Yeah. <laughs> I've always wanted to, it's but not I have easy. not yet It's done. not easy. It is so hard. Yeah. But Are it's you a so big fun. surfer now? I am not good at surfing, okay. although I've done it many times. Okay. So, Do you enjoy it? Yeah. Then for sure. you're a big surfer. Okay. There you go. Okay. <laughs> um, so one day after surfing, I was with my, you know, quote unquote surf instructor, Javi, who was a postdoc at the time. And we had never talked science. We just started chatting. And he said, Hey, what are you doing here? And I told him I was studying, you know, anxiety like behavior um, in fish exposed to elevated CO2. He said, Ah, oh, cool. And I said, What are you studying? And he said, Well, I study these cyanobacteria. So we said, Well, has anyone ever studied the effects of these bacteria on behavior of fish before? And he said, No. I said, well, do you want to do that tomorrow? And he said, okay, <laughs> let's do that tomorrow. Impromptu learning. Science. science. Yeah. And so, you know, the, the message there is you never know when science will, will strike. strike. Yeah, <laughs> you never know when it's going to happen. So that was really cool. And, and then that ended up being a great publication. We got these black perch, exposed them to different levels of two types of, uh, I can never say it right, Cyanococcus bacteria. Um repeated it and found these significant effects with certain types that would mimic a red tide event. So it changed the behavior of these fish during a, a similar type event. So yeah, total random aside, but you never know when science will strike. You said it very well. Yeah. Um, and then, so when you're down there, do you do a lot of studies um, actually in the ocean? Like, do you ever go like dive down and actually study fish in their natural environment? I wish. Oh. Um, <laughs> One of the the similar, you know, uh, clo the closest I've had was when I was on sabbatical and I went down to the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute in Panama. Oh, wow. And that was with Martine from UCSD as well as my collaborator, uh, David Klein, who's a research scientist there. So in order to, to perform our experiment, I needed to first become a scientific scuba diver, which is a cool title and really a lot harder to get that title than I thought. It was like a two week intensive scuba diving course. Oh, wow. Um, where you learn how to scientifically dive. So, so what's the, yeah, what's the difference there? Um, so there were, there were a lot of uh, in-class sessions. We had to learn all about, you know, certain type of gases, certain type of pressures. We had to learn the science behind it. And then we had to learn a lot about, um, 
how to perform some scientific activities while underwater. So there's something you can do, for example, called the transect. Well, you'll be underwater, put out your line of tape, you'll scuba dive along it, and you'll maybe count certain type of corals. Okay. Um, we learned that. We learned navigating. We learned how to, to put in certain scientific tools into the ocean. So say you want to put in a big heavy probe. It's like, well, how do you do this? You can't just put it in there. You have to carry around certain other tanks full of air to help lift and move these mm-hmm. big heavy pieces of scientific equipment around. So it was everything from basically, I had to have my Patty one, I think. From that on, so it was a two-week intensive course. I think I lost about five pounds. It was... <laughs> that it? Wow. Yeah, it was amazing. Um, yeah, and, and so that was really neat. So you know, at, once I had that, I was allowed to go dive in Panama. And so what we did there, we worked with corals in one experiment, but in the experiment that was more related to my research, we caught... Uh, these bicolored damselfish. So that was, it was so hard and so fun trying to net a fish on a coral reef. So there's this big, you know, gawky human with a couple nets who kind of has just started scuba diving. Yeah, like you're brand new. (laughs) Yeah, trying to swing these around and catch these things. So because we needed to catch those fish, because those are the fish that I studied in an ocean acidification experiment. Okay. So you catch them on the reef and then you take them into a controlled environment where you raise them out of CO2. Exactly. And how long ago was this? This was 2016, I believe. 2016. So in that time, what has it been? Eight years? Seven? I never remember what year it is. Um, This is science. (laughs) Since 2016, um, when you guys were studying this acidification of the ocean in 2016 – to now 2021 we're in, um, what has changed? Like, has the rate at which we thought it was going to increase, um, were we right or is it going faster? Is it going slower? Just like kind of what know? are the implications for this this research moving forward? Um, it's a, are it's we a, doomed? Yeah. <laughs> Please. Yeah. Like, like, what can we do? Um, it's uh, it's a, something to be concerned about. So levels of CO2, CO2 are increasing. Uh, and I, I don't know the exact numbers on it. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot of people that, that are monitoring them. So in terms of, of fish, the big question is, can they adapt quicker than the levels change? If they can, okay, no worries. But if they can't, then that's when we start to see some issues. Um, the field itself has changed a little bit in that at the start, there were a lot of papers that came out with more of a, a negative findings. Negative yeah. in a sense that look how bad these results are. Since then, there have been more studies that have shown, and some of them are mine, no effects of increasing levels of CO2. So certain fish species maybe are affected. Some of them may not be. Um, and we also have some transgenerational studies, which are, are important, and those need to be done, where basically you place parent fish in high CO2 environments, and then you look at their offspring. And then you can even look at the offspring of those fish and keep going down the line to see, is there a, uh, is there a long-term effect, or maybe can they genetically adapt um, to these stressors that happen due to the environment? I mean, that's really interesting because, I mean, imagine the lifespan of a fish, like you could actually have... Like, how long would it take you to get five generations of zebrafish? That 
probably if you did your best a year to, within a year or two, you yeah, could have so that. Yeah, so that's actually like a really, when you hear intergenerational study, mm. you're like, oh gosh, like a hundred year long study. But I win a fish, I guess you could study quite a few generations in a short period of time. So yeah, you can. That's very interesting. Um, Something that, yeah, like as a researcher, as a scientist, especially working on something like acidification of the ocean, like does it ever... Is it difficult? Like, how do you feel about the future of our oceans as someone who's actually been studying it and within it? Mm -hmm. So ocean acidification is, is one potential issue. Uh, raising temperatures is another major issue. And, and that one has the community a little bit more worried. Ocean acidification, yes, could be a thing. And sorry, I want to go back a little bit, like ocean acidification, what mm. is causing this? Did we talk about that? It's rising CO2 levels. Yes, and what is yeah. the rising CO2 levels cause of in the air? Are we talking like rising CO2 levels and just the air is getting... Yeah, so okay. yeah, the oceans act as called a big sink for carbon dioxide. So the more CO2 we have in the air, the more that also goes into aquatic environments. So lakes, rivers, streams, and the ocean. Um, and oceans, uh, they're so large, they have relatively consistent water chemistry, whereas streams, like freshwater environments, they vary with the rocks in there, with how deep they are, where, you know. So there's a lot more variability in freshwater systems compared to oceans. So any perturbation in oceans could, you know, have effects on these organisms that live there because there's, uh, they're more fine-tuned to those, those water quality levels. Um, so yeah, long story short, we have CO2 that goes into the air. We have chemical reactions that ultimately, um, cause the pH to change. And then we have the, the pH, uh, getting, going down. So in other words, it becomes more acidified. So all we need to do is get that pH compound for the fish tanks and dump it in the ocean, Some right? baking soda yep. and dump it in there. <laughs> um, whereas temperature, maybe we can't control mm -hmm. that um as we much. can but as society we've chosen that we can't get there that quickly yeah and you know it's it's one of these i was reading something the other day just about uh melting glaciers and how it's just this there could be a, a point of no return and you know having kids i worry a little bit about what's it going to be like for them when they're my age, you know, so we were in the mountains the other day. I was like, look at those glaciers, enjoy those glaciers because mm -hmm. it may be another decade and those glaciers in Jasper will be gone. Um, so it's one thing to look at a pretty glacier. I mean, that's, it's all fine and good. But when you think about um, even just the water runoff moving, I don't want to get into too many deep concepts, but the water fueling crop growth in the prairies, you know, that's an issue. Um, there's so many climate issues now that, uh, should be of concern, um, should have us not necessarily, you know, worried to the, to the point we're not sleeping, but we need to become more aware of these and, and dedicate more time investigating um, the potential that they could have for us. I've been watching a few documentaries, and one of the documentaries that I've uh, seen, and I think it was one of those one-minute documentaries, it was quite quick, <laughs> of artificial glaciers where mm. they are incorporating these um, water spouts 
they're bringing water and you know, sprouting them out in the winter and creating artificial glaciers so that in the spring it's it's creating water for the surrounding areas mm. because the glaciers are no longer natural they 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 can't get glaciers in these areas and then also the other other documentary that i was watching was on um cloud seeding i think it was called mm. where they or cloud flaring where they send these flares into clouds and it it uh, makes it rain or it changes the weather so that these climates it just like it um encourages rainfall in certain places and so we're there's there's studies being done for like these are like what we have to do now where we shouldn't have to do these things like we shouldn't have to make artificial glaciers and we shouldn't have to do these things but these are adaptations that we're having to make well the thing that i see as like again not being like a scientist or anyone whose opinion carries any weight i'm a youtube scientist (laughs) (laughs) is that every time we do something like this like maybe the cloud flaring or cloud seeding or being like, oh, we have an overpopulation of this. Let's just like throw that in there. Is like every time we start to intervene to fix a problem in 10 years, we're like, oh, yeah, we had no idea. Yeah, okay. yeah we, messed, so we messed up. Cool Whoops. if we have to make our own glaciers, but like what? We'll see. All right, 10 mm-hmm. years, we'll come back on the podcast and be like, oh, yeah, those things. Not I'm not saying them. that I'm not saying that any of those things are great <laughs> because we shouldn't have to do that. Mm-hmm. But we've come to a point where mm-hmm. um, rain seeding, uh, cloud seeding, is like a thing. Yeah, I mean, where, we need where rain. people where these climates that are in severe drought, um, like straight up, will not survive right now today without this these technologies. And we hope it's uh, good technology and correct technology. Mm-hmm. Do you think? What's that movie about the train that keeps going around the earth? Oh, I don't know. I know what you're talking about, but I don't know what it's called. Snowpiercer. Yeah. That's what it is. So it's basically this train that it's the only people alive on the planet and they keep circling the earth in this train. I honestly didn't get to the end of the movie, but (laughs) the principle is interesting. The clouds, there's just clouds in the sky. There's nothing there. So you wonder like if cloud seeding happens to too much of an extent, the fear is, you know. We won't ever have clouds again. Yeah. I mean, that's a, uh, I don't think we have to worry about that, but you know, worst case Maybe scenario. Not. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting to think about either way. Yeah. So I guess, um, basically that's everything that we kind of have for you on kind of your previous studies and what you're working on now. Um, is there anything we missed or would you like to talk about kind of what you have going on with new projects? Yeah, I do have lots of projects going on now. Uh, and one that is in the write-up stages, which is before we submit it to the journal, has to do with exposing embryos of zebrafish to levels of THC and CBD that are from cannabis. So we exposed fish individually to, sorry, to individual compounds, either THC or CBD, Mm-hmm. and looked at what happened to these fish as they grew up. And so one of the concerns that I think some people have is the use of cannabidiol as a cure-all for a lot of different and things. And that's CBD oil or yeah. CBD, I guess. Pills. However you consume. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. just this. Have you seen it marketed in different places? I know lots of people that swear by it for things like muscle pain or anxiety, depression, 
fatigue. But here's the thing you is when you it. when you go to the the dispensaries and things like that, they're not allowed to tell you any of that. There's no um, advertising per se on like the health benefits of using things like this. But there is a lot of miscommunication and misinformation around there, I think, about this. Well, yeah, some people eat it, take it in a oil, or even just rub it on. Like I think they make like menstrual topical cream stuff yeah. where you just rub it on your tummy and it's supposed to... So, so I, I mean, to me, I don't, I don't know enough about it, but like it is such a huge part of the cultural lexicon mm-hmm. that CBD oil is a magic, and I don't want to say snake oil because I'm sure it does have actual therapeutic benefits, but everyone says they use it for something different and they take it in a different way. So I'm just like, it can't be this magic cure. Mm-hmm. And now there's studies to to yeah, hopefully so. de- yeah. debug some of the, 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 these misinformations. Yeah, and, and our study basically uh, showed that we should be concerned and that if you are a pregnant mother, it's not ideal to be taking certain concentrations of CBD. So we found this in zebrafish. So obviously with a grain of salt, we found uh, long-term changes in the way that neurons neurons developed as well as the behavior of these fish and even their offspring due to one multi-generational multi-generational effects due to one dose of CBD only at one time in the life of that fish. So uh, it, it's like anything else. You know, if you think of someone taking a compound as an adult, let's say uh, a drink of alcohol, it could be could be great. It could make you relaxed. Um, we metabolize it as, as you know, we can handle a certain per body weight and things yeah, like that. It's a, you know, it, there are recommended doses of alcohol consumption by Health Canada. A drink a day, they say, is relatively fine. But that same drink given to, uh, I'm not going to necessarily say every pregnant mother, but in, to an embryo itself. If that concentration somehow gets to that embryo, it can have a lot of changes in the way that um, the neurological system can develop. And that's mm-hmm. why we have some, you know, fetal alcohol syndrome disorder. We have these, uh, these changes that happen um, to neurons in the nervous system as well as the body itself. And uh, it it's just worries me a little bit that yeah. the CBD that's touted as something to cure everything um, is something that, you know, potential pregnant mom could take and it could have effects that we we aren't aware of yet in humans yeah so maybe um, a, a new growing body of research will kind of maybe tackle it a little bit more in depth which yeah. is always useful to have i think especially when something doesn't have psychotropic effects mm-hmm. um there may be a misconception that because it doesn't get you high it doesn't have this negative effect when we know that there's all sorts of oral medications or even like some skin creams you're not supposed to take while you're pregnant because mm-hmm. I think it's like retinoids or like mm-hmm. strong vitamin A compounds is like yeah. even just putting it on your skin can cause like severe birth defects. So yeah, yeah, it's it's we don't really know, and especially the layman or I don't know, is that the do we still say layman, lame person, lay person? <laughs> Sorry, but like people walking around that may not have that information or be a pharmacologist. Like mm-hmm. we don't know what's going on. No. And the way that, you know, health Canada will approve, uh, things we see in vitamin stores. Um, and with, with a label, it's an NPN, which is a natural product number. So the government will look at those and say, are these safe? 
but they don't investigate whether or not any of these vitamins or, you know, ginkgo or echinacea, whether or not they do what they're supposed to do or what they're explained to do. So the only thing we know is that high doses probably won't kill you. Mm-hmm. But people end up going to these stores and spending a lot of money on different things that they're told will do X, Y, and Z. And it could be placebo effects. There could be some of it. But the, the regulation, for the most part, isn't there. Um, well, the, the regulation doesn't happen until something bad happens, right? You know, they, it's, for the most part, it's just like, will it kill you? No? Okay, well, then it's safe to consume mm-hmm. until somebody has an issue. Yeah, you know, until more things are. It's like a, you know, I hate to compare people to vehicles, but it's like a vehicle recall. You know, ten people can have a part fail on a vehicle, and the the manufacturer is not going to do a darn thing about it. But mm-hmm. soon until as, it's twelve, <laughs> or yeah. whatever the magic threshold number is. So. Yeah, mm-hmm. until until like fifty percent of their their manufacturers' uh, vehicles are noting the same problem, then the government of Canada steps in and says you must issue a recall and pay for these repairs on these vehicles. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I'd assume the, the you know, the, mm-hmm. the drug administration works the same or whatever is regulating the cannabis right now. Yeah, it's Health Canada. Health and, Canada. Uh, you know, an interesting example, we can take echinacea. You've heard of echinacea. Yes. What have you heard it's good for? Um, I think you put the, like, clearing, if you have a cold, I think... You put the oil in a bowl and you put your head over the bowl, or is that something different? You could. That could be one way of administering echinacea, and it's commonly in, in tablets. Oh, okay. So Maybe I'm thinking like peppermint or something. Echinacea it could be peppermint. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so let's say you have this echinacea. You look at the picture on the bottle, and it's a mm-hmm. picture of a plant. So what part of the plant is it? Is it the roots of the plant? Is it the stalk of the plant? Is it the flowers of the plant? Is it the leaves? Uh, the leaves? Uh, and obviously that's a really important question is what are you getting when you buy echinacea? Um, if someone said, you know, I'm going to give you a bag of weed and if you smoked weed and you're excited about it and they gave you a bag of roots from marijuana plants <laughs> or seeds and stems <laughs> yeah you may not be as excited as you initially were because there's no active ingredients in a bag of roots relative to a bag of buds mm-hmm. so the same kind of thing applies like what are you getting when you buy that echinacea and it turns out people have looked into this and there's a lot of studies that show there are different active ingredients in echinacea that are sometimes present when you buy a bottle of echinacea so in some, certain manufacturers will have, I think there are three main ones, we'll have two of the three, mm-hmm. while others will have one of the three, and some may not have any. And then the other question is, um, you know, with any farming, you have different growing seasons and different potency. Again, there's no regulation of any of that with, with natural health products. So you could one year have echinacea that works great, but the next year you could buy the same echinacea that does nothing. So without regulation of, of quality and certain active ingredients, you don't know what you're going to get. Um, and so at least with Health Canada and with um, cannabis, that's why we have THC and CBD that have to be on all of those packages. And maybe we'll see terpenes at some point as well. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so that is in the write-up phase. Do you have anything else that you're working on? Or like what about projects that you're 
you know, like to get started. I know you mentioned the terpenes. Mm-hmm. Um, and also mention anything that you have published as well. And if you want to send us links, we can add those to the well, episode description. Yeah. There's a lot of links. <laughs> you can do that. There is a lot of links. Yeah. You have a lot of studies, which mm-hmm. is, I mean, awesome. Good for you. So. Yeah, well, my students are fantastic. They've done a lot of really great work in the lab. And I've got a pretty big backlog of things that I need to get done because my students have done so much great research. Mm-hmm. Do you have any students like that have now like done research with you for a long period of time or become like research partners? Um, yeah, so I've had some, I've, my students have gone on to do a lot. So I've got, had some that are now veterinarians and doctors and psychologists. Um, they're all over the place. And some of them throughout different stages we do keep in contact. Um, and publishing science, it's not like it, happens right away you mm-hmm. know and in some cases it takes years if not decades to get a piece of work um, out in the scientific world um, so I do keep in touch with a lot of my research students because they have to okay the manuscripts when they're submitted for publication so it, I'm definitely in contact with most of them um, and uh, it does it takes a while so we have to be in touch I have to keep tabs on them. <laughs> that's super fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. Well, that's everything that we had question-wise for you. Um, did you have anything that um, you wanted to talk about that maybe we forgot to ask about? Any last thoughts, insights, calls to action, call out for research collaborators, anything? This is your time. Dream, dream to, collaborators. Yeah, mm. your time to shine. Yeah, and that was where I probably should have put some thought into that question and had a big, long-winded answer as to, you know, dreams and aspirations. Um, but at the moment, I think things are are rolling pretty well as, as in terms of research-wise, and I'm pretty very happy with the way things have gone. Um, obviously, I could always have more grant funding, you know, and I could have more time to do a lot of the projects that I want to do. Um, but things are, are moving nicely and I want to continue working with the, the three basic areas in relation to zebrafish and other fish in general. And that's pharmacology, ecotoxicology, and learning and memory. So I want to keep moving along those pathways and, and, uh, investigating as much as I can and encouraging my students to do so as well. That's so fantastic. We Almost every single one of our guests that we've had on the show, we've talked about where they've come from and where they are now. And almost every single one of them has told us that they had no idea where they would be right now when they first started. And they had, and uh, it's, it's always great to see that we are all on a path towards something. We may not know where we're going to end up, but it seems like you are where you want to be and that you didn't know that this is where you wanted to be until you got here. So, you know, keep keep pushing for what you do, do what you're doing for our listeners out there and uh, you know, eventually you'll 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 be exactly where you want to be. Yeah, mm-hmm. when science strikes. It does. <laughs> when science strikes. It does. Watch out. <laughs> well, Trevor, thank you again so much for joining us um and for yeah, teaching us all about fish and other things that 
Definitely, I never would have learned about otherwise. So This was so My great pleasure. having you, Trevor. Thank you so much for having us. Um, thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you're looking to learn more, don't forget to check out the links in the episode description. Sorry, I didn't have it open. This has been Research Recasted, a knowledge mobilization podcast brought to you by the Office of Research Services and Faculty of Fine Arts and Communications at McEwen University. You can support this podcast by listening on your favorite podcasting platforms with new episodes airing every two weeks, actually in September every week. (laughs) Um, And don't forget to follow and give us a like on Instagram at Research Recasted. Research Recasted is hosted and produced by Dylan Cave and Brittany Eklund. Music, sound design, and editing are by Dylan Cave with research, copy editing, and scripting by Brittany Eklund. Executive producers are Cynthia Pudu, Jason Malenko, and Ray Barree.